Good day, everyone. Welcome to another B-Side. This one is for Joshua chapters 13 through 24, a message titled Growing Giants. I have three parts for you today. In part one, we will talk more about challenges, specifically, why has God brought that challenge you're dealing with right now into your life? Part two, we're actually going to move the preview for next week's message up early in this episode. Uh, and that is because of what part three is. In part three, we're going to talk a bit about the ethics of the book of Joshua. And now I'm moving that toward the end of the episode because I realize that not everyone struggles with that concept or has even thought about it or even cares to think about it. So it's toward the end in case you don't want to hear it. But it is done by Dr. Denny Milburn, and I know a lot of you are fans of the things he produces and would really enjoy hearing what he has to say because Denny digs deep. But before we get to these three parts, let us refresh our memories from the message in 60 seconds or less. Go. We love our comforts. We have a phrase, creature comforts. So we need to learn to straddle the line between comfort and challenge. Because if we only live in comfort and never extend ourselves in challenge, then bad things happen. And the example from the text was this. Caleb sought challenge. He went for the giants. He chose a land that had giants. And Caleb became a giant in the scriptures. But the rest of Israel seemed to settle into comfort and ease. And what happens is the western tribes almost launch a civil war against the eastern tribes because of an altar that they make. The point being, if we don't have giants to help challenge and grow us, we will create giants and drama out of the little things in life. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10, Paul reminds us that it's in our weakness that we realize the power of God in our lives. So we cannot be afraid of challenges because they expose, they expose God's power in our lives. Then just ended with the challenge to live on the edge of your comfort. Part one, challenges. Perhaps you are going through a challenge right now. Perhaps the timing is awful. And perhaps you didn't ask for it. And perhaps you have asked the question, why, God, why this, why now? Of course, I can't actually answer to your specific situation because I don't know what everyone's going through. But I can offer some suggestions of what may be going on. So we go through life with different challenges and growth, but we eventually, what happens is we get comfortable with those challenges because we've learned to master it. So we reach a plateau. So we move through life in these phases. We have unconscious unskill. Then we move on to conscious unskill. Then conscious skill and then unconscious skill. Four phases. Don't worry, we'll go through them again. 
So let's take learning how to drive. I presume just about all of us have done that at some point. Let's take learning how to drive and walk through this paradigm. First begins with unconscious unskill. You are not aware of the skills you lack when it comes to driving. It looks simple enough. You've maybe done a video game or two, but you don't actually know until you get behind the wheel and start your driver's ed. Then you're aware of your unskill, conscious unskill. I remember when I first got behind the wheel of a car with my driving instructor, uh, we lived on a street that was very steep. So I pull out of the driveway and you've got to gun it up. And first of all, there's a blind turn. So you're terrified. And then, you know, you got to gun out in case somebody is coming and you're going uphill. So I pull out and I push the gas. And I think like everyone does just way too hard. And then I back off and then it's like way too little. And then I press it again too hard. And there was this period of just gassing it, stopping, gassing, stopping. And it was jerky, jerky, jerky until I finally learned the right amount to push. Needless to say, within the first few seconds of driving, I was incredibly conscious of my unskill. So this sets us in this upward path of challenge where we're very aware of the challenge in front of us and we've got to learn through it. We're going to grow because of it. So what takes us to the next phase? When we have conscious unskill, we practice And that's how you get better at driving. You practice and practice and practice. And that's when you move into conscious skill. You start to know how much gas to press to get the car to move properly. You understand how hard to press the brake, how soon, how far before the car in front of you you want to come to a complete stop. You know how to look over your shoulder and signal and make sure there's no car in your blind spot. You are aware that you're becoming skilled. So you go from conscious unskill to conscious skill through a series of practice. And then finally, you come to this place where you enter into unconscious skill. How many of us still go through every single checklist as we're driving? It's all repetition. It's all muscle memory. We're skilled at it, and we're not even really aware or thinking about our skill in it. Driving has become, for most of us, second nature. We have entered into autopilot. And this is where most of us stay. Now, of course, in driving, you don't really need to do much more unless you're going to race NASCAR or something. Then, yeah, you're going to have to go another step. But in life, in your skills, in all the various things that we set out to do, we start with this inability to do it. We challenge ourselves and we practice And then we get to this place where it becomes second nature and we kind of cruise through. It's a place of comfort. Things that once scared us or once were hard for us are now simple for us. They're second nature for us. We can go through it in autopilot. That's the plateau. We rise, we rise, and then we sort of plateau somewhere and we're comfortable. Most people stay there. But did you know that you can actually push yourself to be better? And that's where challenge must reintroduce itself to us. 
because now we once again become conscious of a new level that we don't have. Conscious unskill. And then you're going to practice harder because the challenge is going to push you out of that plateau. It's going to get you out of autopilot. It's going to make you more mindful of how you live. This is good. You see what I'm saying? How often are we just cruising through life? Everything's automatic. Everything's routine. Everything's expected. But then that happens. That person calls. That accident occurs. That uncontrollable, unexpected event comes crashing down. Or that invitation to do something that has always terrified you, yet you've known somewhere in the back of your heart the Holy Spirit's been whispering, you ought to give this a try. Hey, challenges come. Sometimes we welcome them, sometimes we push them away. Sometimes we instigate them, and sometimes they come uninvited. But the challenges are there so that we can wake up and not live in mind-numbing autopilot mode. We can become more aware and you become more aware of God around you and how God's working in everything because you have to be. Your eyes are open wider. Your ears are open and hearing more clearly. You're sensing the leading of God and the work of the spirit. And that's much like what Paul said in second Corinthians chapter 12. Hey, it's in our weakness that we recognize his strength and his power. And so you may be wondering why this, why now? Maybe God is wanting to wake us up. You may think that I was fine taking my nap. I was having a great time hibernating. And we often can feel like a grumpy bear when we're awakened out of that. Yeah, it can feel rude. It can feel like a a splash of ice, cold, chilling water. But you know when we live life numbed and in autopilot... Yeah, it may be safe from danger, but we're also missing out on the intense joy, excitement, happiness, the fulfillment of doing something with purpose. That is also missed out. See, if we want to numb discomfort, we're also going to numb joy, purpose, meaning, significance, just that feeling of being alive. Besides, when we live in autopilot, time flies by. The days begin to blur next to one another. But if you notice when you're involved in something intense, how much more every moment has significance, how much more alive and awake you are to every person, everything, every opportunity. We weigh our words more carefully. We're in prayer more fervently. God seems more present. And I believe that that's how he wants us to live. No more moral midgets, as C.S. Lewis calls them. Uh, we want giants who rise up to everything that life throws us because we see them as opportunities to challenge us out of our slumber and rise up. So why this and why now? Because maybe God is giving you the steps to grow into a giant. Part two, 
a preview of the book of Ephesians. Yes, we just finished Joshua. We had four messages in Joshua. Next up is the book of Ephesians, which we will be doing in one week. So this upcoming Sunday will be a single message covering the entirety of the book of Ephesians. Why Ephesians? Why now? Because Ephesians has been called the New Testament Joshua. And there are some similarities. Um, Israel, being God's people in the Old Testament, are moving into an inheritance. In Ephesians, the church, God's New Testament people, are also moving into an inheritance. In Joshua, that inheritance is a land flowing with milk and honey. In Ephesians, that inheritance is Christ himself, in whom we have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in whom we have been raised and seated with in the heavenly places next to the throne of God. So no, we will not be covering Ephesians in depth on Sunday. We will be touching on many of its themes and zeroing in on certain parts of the book in order to see how we can enter and possess the inheritance God has given us, much in the same way Israel did with the inheritance he gave them. So next week's B-side, um, I think I'm going to plan on reading through Ephesians verse by verse and making comments here and there. So maybe a long one, but that way we can get the whole book. But on Sunday, um, it will take way too long to do it on Sunday. So on Sunday, we'll be pulling out some of the themes and some applications for us to live by. But for this, I just want to give you guys a couple things to look for as you read Ephesians as a preview. And I really, 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 really hope that you are reading Ephesians throughout the week Ephesians is my favorite, not one of, not up there, not close to, but is my favorite book in the Bible. I've taught this book more than any other book in the Bible by at least twice as much, um, which <laughs> one might hear and assume, oh, he must be an expert on it. Oh, no, no, no. I do not claim to be an expert. In fact, every year, it seems, that I'm looking through Ephesians, I'm seeing more and more and saying, how did I miss that? How did I not see that? I want to know this better. And I, so much is stirred in my soul as I read Ephesians that I only wish I could communicate halfway what I'm stirred by. So I'm, I'm always trying to grow and getting this book across. Um, so the encouragement to you is to read this book, sit with this book, saturate it, Meditate and chew on the phrases and the verses and the words because this book will alter forever your identity. And that's why this book is so needed. It tells you who you are even if you don't feel close to that. As Denny likes to say, uh, this book shows you your position despite your condition. Yeah, you may fail, you may feel miserable, you may feel depressed. That's your condition. But your position is outlined for us in the book of Ephesians. It tells you who you are, regardless of what the world says, of what your shame says, of what your ego thinks, of what your parents have said, or even other Christian leaders. I really hope that you can read this multiple times and just 
sit with it. So I want to open with this quote from Eugene Peterson in his book on Ephesians, because I thought that this ties in very well. It says, Ephesians is a revelation of the church we never see. It shows us the healthy soil and root system of all the operations of the Trinity, out of which the church that we do see grows. It does not describe the various expressions of what grows from that soil into cathedrals and catacombs, storefront missions and revival tents, tabernacles and chapels, nor does it deal with the various ways in which church takes from an, uh, f- takes form in liturgy and mission and polity. Rather, Ephesians is an inside look at what is beneath and behind and within the church that we do see wherever and whenever it becomes visible. So in other words, what Peterson was saying there is that Ephesians is showing us the true identity of the church and of Christians. Now, we have a variety of churches and different expressions of worship and different missions and activities and outreaches and evangelisms and teachings and so forth. And all these programs and events are circling around and around. But that's not the church. These things grow out of something invisible, something deep, something ancient, something eternally enormous. And Ephesians shows us these roots. It shows us what's, I love the phrase, beneath and behind and within us. So that's what we see. That's why this book is so good. Because regardless of what you're going through, what you're feeling, how you failed, what the world is saying, what the world is doing, regardless of all of this, Ephesians is an eternal bedrock truth. And it doesn't change. And the more we tap our identities and our roots into the message of this book, the more rooted and more unshaken by the world and by events and challenges we will become. One thing that's unique about the book of Ephesians is that it does not arise out of a specific problem. Corinthians, Paul writes Corinthians because there are issues in that church and he names them and he's addressing them issue by issue. Galatians arises out of this need of addressing circumcision. You go down the New Testament letters, and often as you're reading commentaries, they'll tell you, yeah, this letter's addressing this problem. Paul gets wind of this, and he's writing in response to it. So in a sense, many of the New Testament churches, if they didn't have problems, we wouldn't have letters in our New Testament. We would have a very slim New Testament. In Ephesians, many people believe that this was a letter meant to circulate widely around all of the churches, that Paul wasn't writing to a specific context or a specific problem, but he was writing general truths. As if he used to say, hey, if I wanted the majority of Christendom to know something, this is what they need to know. Which is possibly why Ephesians is so powerful. Because the context of this book is eternal. You know, we read Galatians and we can pull a lot out of it, but we're not really fighting over circumcision in our congregations. So we take general doctrines and truths out of it. But Ephesians is speaking to context that we will always find ourselves in. 
Now, Ephesians does address some problems. One of which you will see is the Gentile and Jew relationships. That is not because Paul is writing specifically in response to a problem with this in Ephesus, but this was just a general thing that the church was dealing with. So he's writing to all the churches, hey, guys, get along. There are two very distinct cultures, one steeped in scripture and the other steeped in paganism that are somehow supposed to get together and find commonality. And we can find parallels to this all throughout life. How how many of our churches are struggling to find commonality and unity? Yeah, and our differences are much smaller than Jews and Gentiles. So what what Paul has to say in Ephesians about how they get along and become one is so applicable to so many of our divisions in life. Uh, you'll see this aspect highlighted in chapters 2 and 3. Chapter 4, we'll talk about unity, and it will be uh, much more broadly dealt with with the fact that we have gifts and that God has given gifts so that we can use them for the growing up of the people of God. Yeah, like growing us into giants. He says, into a mature manhood, fulfilling that which we were made to become. All right, so let me just give you a rundown then a preview, things that you can read for in the book of Ephesians. I'm going to give you uh, my outline that I have developed uh, along the theme of inheritance. So chapters 1 through 3 form one part. We will call it entering our inheritance. Chapters 4 through 6, the last half of the book, is part 2, and we'll call that possessing our inheritance. So in part 1, entering our inheritance, in chapter 1, what Paul is doing is he's listing the blessings we have in Christ. Now, chapter 1 is an amazing chapter, not only because of the blessings we see in Christ, but because the entire chapter consists of a mere two sentences in the original Greek. A mere two sentences comprises the entirety of chapter 1. That, my friends, is absurd. Verses 1 through 14 is the first sentence. These 14 verses are so deep and so worthy of a lifetime of devotion and prayer. <laughs> we could spend forever on them. You could do a sermon per verse. You can do so much with these 14 verses. And yet it is one breathtaking sweeping sentence. And what's more amazing is that Paul generally didn't write his letters by his own hand. He dictated them to what was called an amanuensis, somebody who would be his scribe. He dictates these 14 verses just one breath from Paul, one unending sentence. This just coming off the top of his head. Hey, by the way, this is what you are like, Christian. And we can look at these 14 verses for a lifetime and be amazed and astounded and have our lives changed. That That's the kind of um, theological prowess Paul possessed. That's, that's the kind of depth this guy was rooted in Christ. That is Paul who has entered his inheritance. He understands it. He's explored it. And he is just in one sentence scratching the surface and saying, hey, let's start it off like this. Christian, you have these blessings in Christ. If you just read those first 14 verses alone this week, it'll be worth it. 
a 202-word sentence. Amazing. So these blessings give to you and I boundaries to our inheritance, which is similar to the way Joshua starts, too. Joshua begins with, hey, arise and enter into the land. I've already given it to you. Um, Ephesians says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. So both inheritances are already given, and we're being invited to enter them. Hey, they're already yours. Enter in. Then Joshua goes on to define the boundaries of the promised land. In Joshua chapter 1, Ephesians then defines the boundaries of our inheritance. And that's what these blessings are. That we were chosen before the foundations of the world. That God predestined us in love to his purpose. That in Christ, in his blood, he has redeemed us from slavery and has made known to us in all of his infinite wisdom, his plan for all time, which is to unite all things in heaven and on earth together in Christ. And then that in Christ we've been given an inheritance. And that he has given us a down payment, a guarantee of the inheritance through the Holy Spirit working and living within us until we acquire possession of it. Yes, we can enter into our inheritance in Christ now, but do we actually possess it yet? We're going to learn how to own it a bit, but when Jesus returns, that is our ultimate possession and the Holy Spirit's given to us until then. So chapter one, it's just the lay of the land. This is what we get to inherit. And in verses 15 to the end of the chapter, Paul gives this magnificent prayer. A prayer in which, by the way, is a good idea to pray every day. That the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to us a spirit of wisdom and revelation to know him. Yes, please. That he would open the eyes of our hearts to see the calling to which he has called us, the riches of his inheritance, and the immeasurable power at work among us. A power, by the way, so great that it's the same exact power God used to raise Christ from the dead and then ascend him to his right hand, putting galaxies and governments and all authority underneath his feet and sharing that authority with the church. Yeah, if this power exists, I want to know it. So, Lord, please give me a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Open the eyes of my heart to see and know this. Yeah, Paul understands the magnitude of what he's saying. So he gives this lengthy prayer. By the way, that whole prayer is, again, one sentence. Chapter 2. Blood, the way into our inheritance. So Joshua um, is the leader bringing Israel into their inheritance. Jesus is our leader bringing us into our inheritance. Joshua does the fighting. Jesus did the fighting. And by the way, if you did not know this already, Joshua is simply our English version of the Jewish name. Jesus is our English version of the Greek name. Both the same. Yeshua. So Yeshua um, is Joshua. Yeshua is Jesus. It's just the English translation from two different languages. Yeah, Jesus is our Joshua. He's gone ahead. He's fought the battles. So the Christian defers in this sense that there's nothing for us to fight. There's no one for us to fight. He has already conquered through his blood. 
The cross was his sword. The cross was his battle. And he was victorious because he was dead, but then was raised. That's victory, my friends. So he's conquered death. Um, chapter 2 shows us, hey, you were once dead in your sins and trespasses, but Christ has made us alive and raised us up with him to sit with him in the heavenly places. For it is by grace you have been saved, not by works, lest anyone should boast. So we are reconciled with Jesus, with God through Jesus. So there's a vertical reconciliation. The rest of chapter two talks about a horizontal reconciliation between two different kinds of people, two different races, Jew and Gentile. And so if we have been reconciled through Christ between us and the father, then we must be reconciled with the people around us through Christ. Horizontal and vertical reconciliation. This is the power of God in Christ. He's bringing like chapter one, Verse 10, I think verses 9 and 10 say he's bringing all things together in Christ. Please don't resist this flow and power and energy of God because it will only destroy you if you resist it. So who are you resisting? Who are you not willing to reconcile with? Who are you not seeking to understand? Who are you pushing away? Did you know that we're pushing away the unity of Christ as we push each other away? And then Paul explains at the end of chapter 2, look, in bringing them all together through his blood on the cross, he's making us into a temple. When the people of God come together and work together and have unity and love and harmony, it is the presence of God on this earth. Chapter 3, Paul goes into it a little bit more and describes his own personal narrative um, being put in prison for the sake of Gentiles. So Paul's like, hey, I'm working out this too, guys. Um, and then he offers his second prayer in 3 verse 14. Another prayer saying, look, guys, this whole reconciled with God and now reconciling with others because of the cross of Christ, this is so great. I want to pray that you understand this. And so that prayer is also great, especially the part where it talks about the depth, the height, and the breadth, and the width of God. Just like the promised land, they were just going to inherit whatever they were willing to enter into. God is limitless. Keep on moving in. Keep on forgiving and loving and reconciling and praying and, and, and sitting with Christ in the heavenly places. Keep on understanding who you are because there's no end to this journey of discovery. So keep allowing the challenges to come because they're going to be pulling us in deeper Part two, possessing our inheritance. So on one hand, we're never going to fully possess it until Christ comes. I mean, then we're actually going to be with him, right? But there is a sense of that. Let's enter into this inheritance, but let's also learn how to live in it. You know, don't just enter and say, oh, that was nice. Now I'm going to exit and do my thing. Enter it and now learn to live life here. Your inheritance in Christ um, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's Ephesians 1 verse 3. That, stay there. This is the good land. This is the good life in Christ. So live here. So chapter 4 begins with, therefore, walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. 
There's this study called rhetoric, Greek rhetoric. A lot of scholars will look at some of these letters in the New Testament and see their rhetorical structure. There was a structure that they used. Um, and in the pattern of Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 1, this walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called, is Paul's first and main point. Everything has been set up to this verse. This is what Paul wants the universal, eternal church to know. That we have a magnificent calling, verses 1 through 3, to enter into this inheritance, sorry, chapters 1 through 3, to enter into this inheritance, and that he wants us now to walk worthy of it. Walk means live. And where are we to walk? As Israel's to walk in their land, we are to walk in this inheritance, which means live in it, dwell in it, understand yourself, your calling, the world from this vantage point. Walk worthy. Worthy comes from a Greek word, axios, which means balance, like a balancing scale. So you would want to buy, let's say, a sack of wheat in the market back in the day. Um, what is it worth? Well, you would then put the coins or, or the other thing you're bargaining until the scales are balanced. That is its worth, right? Now you know that I am giving a fair price for this. That's the balancing scale concept. So on one side of the scale, you have this inheritance we've been called to enter, this who we are and what we've been given in Christ, this calling. On the other side of the scale is this commission to walk worthy of it. In other words, don't just enter it, but live in it, possess it, make your life centered here. So if chapters one through three are amazing and heavy, yeah, you are to live a life in balance with that. This is quite the call that Paul is offering to us. Walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And so then he goes on to explain chapter four and he, he talks about unity and he has a series of ones, one father, one spirit, one baptism, one faith, one Lord. And there's seven of them because we're a new people. This is a new life. We're entering into a new Eden, a new creation. As Israel entered into a new land, we lost Eden. Here's the new Eden. We are entering into the new promised land, the new land, the new creation in Christ. He's making all things new. So let's get together. Let's have oneness. And he tells the body to grow up. So chapter four um, is about our behavior. Chapters four and five, really, they're about our behavior and how we settle into this inheritance. So Paul's going to ask us to walk five times. I've already told you the first one, walk worthy. Chapter four, verse 17, he doesn't use the word holiness, but he says, do not walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. So you can insert the word holiness. He wants us to walk holy, which just means set apart and different at a higher level than the unsaved pagans do. And that's where he tells us to put off the old self and to put on the new self. Um, and the rest of chapter four has a lot, just a, a sort of like a list of morals and, and ways to live. Boom, 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 boom. Chapter five, verse one, he asks us to walk in love, to be imitators of God as dearly loved children. Chapter 5, verse 7, to walk in light, 
Because, look, the works of the unsaved are darkness. So we are not to have any part in that, but we're to walk in light. And then fifth, chapter 5, verse 15, he calls us to walk. Um, different translations say different things. Walk carefully, walk circumspectly. The idea is wisely. So to walk in wisdom. So, yeah, you've got this calling, you've got this knowledge. We Most of us know our Bibles. If you're even listening to this, you're probably really interested in Scripture. Uh, you have knowledge, but now let's put this to use. Walk wisely because the days are evil. Then he tells us to be sober, not to be drunk with wine, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit, which is such a powerful play there. Don't be filled with wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit. He uses the word drunk, right? Because um, when you're full when you're filled with wine or any other intoxicating beverage or any other substance, it affects your thinking and behavior. Paul wants us to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that it affects our thinking and our behavior. We're controlled by him. To be filled is the idea of, you could imagine a glass being filled with water and overflowing, but more powerful is to imagine a sail which drives a boat. Imagine the sail filled with wind. That is the boat's power. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's how you walk in wisdom. Then uh, chapter five ends with some um, ideas of how to uh, have a harmonious marriage. And then chapter six, um, we come to verse 10. This is the last part of the book. It's battle. So one of the ways we live in, dwell in, possess the land is to do what chapter six, verse 10 says. Stand. Stand against the enemy. And this is where the armor of God comes in. Chapter 6, verse 14, it describes the armor. The armor of God, the spiritual warfare. The warfare is not about advancing to conquer something. That's what Joshua did. Jesus has already conquered. He's already put us in him. He's raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenlies, it says in chapter 2. We are in the best position we can ever be in. And the enemy knows this. So his wiles, his schemes, his tactics, his deceits, his attacks are all about getting us out of position. So it is our call to stand firm. Do not leave this great calling and inheritance and blessing and position and rulership and salvation. You can go down in the list and on and on. Do not leave this because it is no better anywhere else. No matter the lure, the temptation, the tactic the devil uses to get you to walk out of position, it is better nowhere else. So stand firm here. And of course that means with everybody else. You can't stand where you are if we're divided. It means either you or someone else is out of position. And probably both, to be honest, because Christ is a position. And if we're divided, it means we're not uniting in Christ. Because in Christ, there's unity. In Christ, all people, Gentile and Jew, come together in him. So if we're not together, neither of us are in him. Spiritual warfare much of it has to do with interpersonal relationships. Because Satan wants so hard, so badly, to get us to dislike each other. That's why Paul makes a very clear statement. 
we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Even Joshua and the Israelites didn't, in a sense. Yeah, there was a real flesh and blood battle, but it was not about the people. It was about the culture and the religion that God wanted eliminated. These are not good for you, my people. So we're not battling against flesh and blood. We're battling against deeper, darker forces behind the scenes. And people will often be perceived as the enemy. Because it's Billy that said that. It's Sarah that did that, right? But we have to understand that they are not the enemy. They are not. They may have heard it. They may have done something wrong. Or maybe we're in the wrong. Because if you're easily offendable, you are not in a good place. We have to remember that it's not about the people who are the enemy. There's an enemy working behind them. And that's the one we need to avoid. We need to stand in position. He's going to use people to get you out of position. We need to be centered. So find your center. Ephesians is all about that center. In Christ. That's your center. That's your true north. That's your alignment. That's your calibration. Whatever you want to say. It's in Christ. So stand therefore. So much to say. And I think in the next B-side, like I said, we'll uh, just go through this line by line. So, um, happy reading. Part three, the ethics of God. This is the part where some of you may want to sign out, but some of you may be very interested. I encourage you to give it a listen because Danny always has something interesting to say nonetheless. Most, I understand, in our fellowship are not real worried about the ethics of Israel going into Canaan to kill the Canaanites and to take over their land. Most whom I've talked to say, look, God commanded them to do it. That's fine with me. And we don't have to defend God, right? It's not like God is on trial. God is God, and God can do what he wants. So, again, if this has not ever concerned you, you don't have to listen to this. But I'm thinking about the person. And remember, I talk to teenagers a lot, and I'm a, I'm a high school Bible teacher, so I hear some of these questions, and, and I see what their concerns are. So I'm thinking about the person that does have the question. Um, the atheist has a hard time with the book of Joshua. In fact, so much so that I'm going to read to you some things that one leading atheist, Richard Dawkins, has said about God, the God of the Old Testament, coming primarily from the book of Joshua. He says, the God of the Old Testament was a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser a genocidal, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent being. Bully. (laughs) A lot of um, big words he threw out there. I think you get the point. He was trying to throw every gross and ridiculous adjective toward God that he can because of the Canaanite invasion. Uh, He's... To put it in much more simpler <laughs> terms, uh, he said that God is interested in bloodthirsty massacres carried out with xenophobic, xenophobic relish. Yeah. 
from an outsider's point of view, especially one that doesn't like God, you can see how you could use Joshua as your main reason not to like God. You can twist all this to look like he's a grumpy old grouch. And look, people legitimately see it this way. I know somebody who was a Christian, so much so that they signed up for a discipleship program, went through it, saw God's work, learned about God, and upon coming back home, became an atheist. Full-on atheist. Let me know. Ask me some questions, and specifically related to these issues. Could not justify it, a God who would do this, and walked away. So, the reason for this part is because this exists. Um, Richard Dawkins, again, the atheist, was once challenged by William Lane Craig, a Christian apologist, to have a discussion, a debate, to talk at Oxford University. And Dawkins refused to do it. Um, And here's his reasoning. Just to give you a sense of how much distaste some people have for this. He said, This Christian, and he quotes, philosopher, is an apologist for genocide. I would rather leave an empty chair than share a platform with him. Ouch. And that's why Dawkins refuses to have the discussion. Okay, so what do we do with this? Um, There are three responses, two of which I'm going to take a guess you're not going to like. And I'm not saying you should like them, nor am I saying I like them. I'm just saying these are some of the responses people give. The first response is to say that the book of Joshua is a myth. It's a myth, meaning it's a story created to teach Israel a lesson. So it didn't happen historically. It became a myth about where they came from, how they got into their land. And basically, I would presume the point of the myth is to drive home the uh, a reaction toward idolatry. Since Israel struggled with idolatry and eventually lost the land, just like the Canaanites, because of idolatry. <laughs> so Israel got the same treatment. Um yeah, they struggled with idolatry, that this myth was created to teach Israel how to be ruthless toward idolatry and to cling loyally to Yahweh. The second way to address this is that um, we see in Joshua, and actually throughout the Bible, an evolution of consciousness. Now, this is, I don't, I don't know exactly who started this one, but it's popular right now with a guy named Peter Enns. You can see him all over online if you search Peter Enns, E-N-N-S. And uh, his idea is that throughout the Bible, we see an evolution of humanity's understanding of who God is. So that in Joshua, what happens is that God didn't command Israel to conquer the Canaanites. Israel thought God commanded them to conquer the Canaanites. You see, they were doing what all other nations do and what the other gods at the time did. They were violent gods. They uh, gave their people permission to slaughter other people. So Israel moves into the land saying, oh, we like this land. Let's go take it. Uh, We think God wants us to do this. And so they, you know, they tell the story like God commanded us to do this. Um, And that they would eventually, as the Bible progresses, we begin to see a God, uh, the humans begin to understand God more clearly and realize God wouldn't command that. Um, You may see some of the problems with this, and it being maybe a few, but primarily this, that ends view 
of the Bible is not God's word to man, but it's man's word to God. That the Bible is a record of how humans have understood God, not a revelation of God to humanity. And then third, the third way we can address this is, wait for it, Dr. Denny Milburn and what he has to say. <laughs> so I will leave, um, I will leave what he's going to say to his segment. But me, uh, a couple things I would like to say in response is first, some things to keep in mind. First, that Israel entering the promised land was never about race. It was about religion. And that their main task was not to eradicate people, but to eradicate their idolatry. We see evidence of this at the very first city they come to. Rahab believes and Israel welcomes Rahab to be saved and become part of the Israelite community. If it was all about annihilating every single human because of their ethnicity, Rahab would not have been allowed in. But Rahab was because she repented from idolatry and joined the worship of Yahweh. And the marching around the city of Jericho seven times may have been symbolic of the seven ites, the seven nationites that they were to drive out and giving them time to come to Yahweh. Would Jericho have been spared if they did? Under the model of Rahab, we believe, I believe, yes. And Rahab is one example. We do not know how many other Rahabs were saved. We just have one record in the story. There may have been many more, because as would be typical of the Bible, the very first um, scene becomes an example of the others. Joshua and Jericho, it's a longer account because it became a model for what happened throughout. Israel attacked, well, this, this comes to my second point, um, that Israel always fought fairly. Israel attacked military outposts. The ones that we have recorded in Joshua, this is men fighting men. These are warriors fighting warriors who are resisting Israel and res Israel is resisting them. We don't see them actually fighting against women and children. They may have been given a fair chance to run away. And much of the language in Joshua is, and after, is drive out. Not massacre, drive out. So we see fair battle, men against men and possibly women and children being allowed to run away, to be driven out, um, or to be converted, like we're saying. And then third, um, I want to read, this is from the book, Is God a Moral Monster Making Sense of the Old Testament God? And it's by Paul Copen. So I'm going to read this excerpt from you about Israel's warfare methods. So here it goes. We've discussed Richard Dawkins' flawed claim that Israel engaged in ethnic cleansing. Those bloodthirsty massacres carried out with xenophobic relish. A review of Israel's warfare methods reveals otherwise. Israel's army simply didn't act like a horde of bloodthirsty, maniacal warmongers. For one thing, the aftermath of Joshua's victories are featherweight descriptions in comparison to those found in the annals of the ancient Near East's major empires, Hittite and Egyptian, 2nd millennium BC, uh, Armenian, Assyrian, Babylonian, Persian, or Greek, 1st millennial, 1st millennium BC. Unlike Joshua's belief, 
or unlike Joshua's brief four-verse description of the treatment of the five kings, chapter 10, verse 24 through 27, Assyrians exulted in all the details of their gory, brutal exploits. Here's some examples. The Neo-Assyrian annals of Ashurnasipal II, 883 to 859 BC, take pleasure in describing the flaying of live victims, the impaling of others on poles, and the heaped up bodies for show. They boast of how the king mounded bodies and placed heads into piles. The king bragged of gouging out troops' eyes and cutting off their ears and limbs, followed by his displaying their heads all around a city. Pause. I want to say something here. That one of the ways you can describe uh, how we react to Israel and the land and to the critics' criticism of it is and I just remembered this, is um, that God uses, God meets people where they're at to move them forward a step. So some of the Old Testament laws, for example, are things we don't keep anymore because, well, frankly, we look at them, some of them are barbaric. Stoning a child for disobeying his parents, like, uh, that's a little barbaric. But but God's law was meeting a people in a world where it was at. That wasn't unusual for the world then. But then he takes his people one step closer to his ideal. And so uh, warfare was very, very, very common. God is meeting Israel in a world that used warfare. So they're using warfare. But God is using warfare in a more humane way than the other nations had at the time. God cannot accelerate us too rapidly we wouldn't even identify what he's trying to ask us to do. So he meets us where we're at. And isn't this how he uses us in life, little by little? Meets us where we're at, and little by little gets us to his ideal. So we see right here, um, Israel is not nearly as barbaric or brutal as some of the other nations. All right, continuing the quote. Second, a number of battles Israel fought on the way to and within Canaan were defensive the Amalekites attacked the traveling Israelites, Exodus 17, verse 8. The Canaanite king of Arad attacked and captured some Israelites, Numbers 21, verse 1. The Amorite king Sihon refused Israel's peaceful overtures and attacked instead, Numbers 21, verse 21 through 32, Deuteronomy 2, verse 26 through 30. Bashan's king Og came out to meet Israel in battle, Numbers 21, verse 33, Deuteronomy 3, verse 1. Israel responded to Midian's calculated attempts to lead Israel astray through idolatry and immorality, Numbers three, numbers 31, verse 2 through 3, and compared to t- verse 25, and Numbers 31, verse 16. Five kings attacked Gibeon, which Joshua defended because of Israel's peace pact with the Gibeonites, see Joshua 10, verse 4. And consequently, uh, two Sundays ago. Besides this, God prohibited Israel from conquering other neighboring nations. These nations were Moab and Ammon, Deuteronomy 2 verse 9 and verse 19, as well as Edom, Deuteronomy 2 verse 4 through 5 and 23 verse 7, even though they had earlier refused to assist the Israelites, Numbers 20 verse 14 through 21, and compare Deuteronomy 2 verses 6 through 8. Land grabbing wasn't permitted by God, and Israel had no right to conquer beyond what God had sanctioned. And third, 
all sanctioned Yahweh battles beyond the time of Joshua were defensive ones, including Joshua's battle to defend Gibeon, Joshua chapters 10 through 11. Of course, while certain offensive battles took place during the time of the judges and under David and beyond, these were not commended as ideal or exemplary. We've also seen that fighting in order to survive wasn't just an adventure. It was a way of life in the ancient Near East. Such circumstances weren't ideal by far, but that was the reality. And so, like I said, again, God will meet a people where they're at and take them forward, advance them, progress them a step toward the ideal. But never too quickly. All right. Hopefully some of this was worth listening to, um, some reflections on it. You now have the Dr. Denny Milburn himself with his always thoroughly researched and well-outlined presentation. So please enjoy his efforts. This is Pastor Brandon with grace and gratitude. Thank you for listening. I have been asked to speak today regarding the ethics of God as it relates to the killing of the Canaanites and the driving of the Canaanites out of the land of Canaan. I'm not sure we can talk about the ethics of God when God is never unethical. He's always righteous and just, and he's always holy, and he always does the right thing, whether we know it or understand it or not. His ways are higher than our ways as far as the heavens are above the earth, and we don't always understand what he's doing, but he's always right in what he does, and he's always holy and just. And so we're going to see that God annihilated many of the Canaanites for reasons of capital punishment that we'll look at. And also because of events that happened in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, where the bloodline of the Redeemer was going to be corrupted, and God had to stop that. So that is why God destroyed the earth with a flood, and why he destroyed the Canaanites, because of this bloodline. But we're going to talk about capital punishment uh, first. And also... We're going to see that God had to preserve Israel. He couldn't let the Canaanites destroy and annihilate Israel, or none of the prophecies of the Bible would come true. There were prophecies, unconditional prophecies, through Abraham, where all the nations of the earth would be blessed because of Christ. There are prophecies regarding Christ's life in his birth and his death and his work that would never come true. Prophecies regarding the millennium and the nation of Israel and the promises that God made that would never come true if Israel was wiped off the face of the earth. So God's veracity would have to be questioned because of all these unconditional promises that couldn't happen because Israel wasn't around. But also, we're going to find out when we look at the events of Genesis 6, 1 through 4, it was to preserve the seed of the Redeemer that was being corrupted in a big way uh, on the earth. Now, God is never unethical. He's sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. He owes us nothing. We've all sinned. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. And there's not a man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so the wages of sin is death. So God is right if he wiped out every human being on the earth right from the beginning. But he didn't because he's a merciful God. And we're going to see that. He says he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. Uh, but also, he says, 
that he will not strive with man forever. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive with man in Genesis 6.3. So God goes so far, but there's a time when he will turn men over to their own reprobate mind. And we'll see that as we go. God said he'll have mercy on whom he'll have mercy. Well, in Romans, the first chapter, we see three times where God said he gave them up or he gave them over to uncleanness, certain men. And he says he gave them up to their vile affections. And also it says that he gave them over to a reprobate mind. There are people who will never change their mind about their lifestyle or their beliefs. Take, for example, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. God gave them every chance in the world to repent, and nobody would. Nobody would come out, even after the warnings, and he turned them over to their reprobate mind. He didn't strive forever with them. He turned them over to their own mind, their own free will. And uh, with the Canaanites, it's a lot like that also. Now, uh, God is holy and righteous and just all the time. God is originally, intrinsically, primarily, efficiently, perfectly, eternally, infinitely, immutably, transcendently, uniquely, and gloriously holy. The angels in heaven cry, holy, 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 in front of him uh, day and night. Uh, it says in Exodus 15:11, who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods, who is like thee, glorious in holiness. And there are many scriptures about the holiness of God, also about his righteousness and his justice and his lack of sin and iniquity. Uh, we read in Deuteronomy 32.4, uh, he is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. And so he's a God of righteousness and judgment, without iniquity and without sin, and everything he does is right, even if we don't understand it. Now, I've told this story that I'm going to tell several times in other contexts, but it seems to really apply here. There was a boy who built a boat, and he loved that boat, and he took it out on the lake, and he got away from him out on the waters, and he couldn't get it. And he started crying because he wanted his boat, but he couldn't get it. And he saw a bigger boy standing off to his side. So he called the bigger boy. The bigger boy came over, and without saying a word, he picked up rocks and started throwing them out towards the boat. Well, the boy went crazy and said, I asked you for help, and I want to get my boat back, and you're throwing rocks at my boat. But as he watched, he saw that every rock went a little bit over the boat. It hit the water, it created ripples, and the boat was coming closer and closer to the shore. The big boy was doing the right thing, even though the younger boy didn't understand it at all. And that's the way it is with God. There are many things he does that we don't understand, but just know always that he's right and just and fair, and he always does the right thing. And uh, that'll help us a lot. We talked about capital punishment. There's capital punishment in Israel, and capital punishment was instituted in Genesis 9-6, It says, whosoever sheds man's blood, his blood shall be shed by man, for God made man in his his image. And capital punishment was a big part, a big feature of Old Testament justice. 
execution was called for in extreme cases, in extreme crimes like murder and rape, and offenses against God's holiness, and also against false prophets and witchcraft, and even kids cursing their parents uh, required uh, capital punishment and the death penalty. The Old Testament law commanded death for various acts. For example, murder, kidnapping, bestiality, adultery, incest, homosexuality, sorcery, being a false prophet, cursing your father or your mother, prostitution, rape, and many other crimes. And there are scriptures for every one of these, and they were capital offenses. However, God didn't always exercise this capital punishment on people. He often showed mercy, even when the death penalty was due. Uh, Think for a minute about David. He both killed and committed adultery, and yet capital punishment was not inflicted upon him. Also in the New Testament, you think about the woman taken in adultery. Uh, She wasn't stoned. They didn't exercise capital punishment and kill her. Now, ultimately, every sin we commit should result in the death penalty because the wages of sin is death. But God is merciful, and he'll have mercy on whom he will have mercy. So, thankfully, God demonstrates his love toward us. Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, it says in Romans 5, 9. So Israel had capital punishment crimes, but so did the Canaanites. And God was going to inflict capital punishment on the Canaanites. Now, the land of Canaan had all kinds of tribes in it, all the Ites, the Jebusites, and Amorites, and Midianites, and Hivites, and Hittites. And it was several made up of several tribes. And Israel was going to go in and defeat them and drive them out of the land. Uh, Canaan's sin... Was not genocide or ethnic cleansing. A lot of liberals say that, that God was involved in genocide and ethnic cleansing, like he's the Taliban or something. But it wasn't about that. It's about capital punishment, and we'll see that as we go. Also, the entire race wasn't destroyed uh, by God, where every Canaanite was killed. But only those who lived in certain geographical areas uh, and boundaries and certain tribes were killed. And there were other people that were, that were spared. There were even specific people who were spared. For example, Israel went out one time and killed a lot of Canaanites and brought back all the women. Well, then they were commanded to kill the wives, but to spare the virgins. And so they spared 32,000 virgins. And I think there's probably a reason why they spared them, because they couldn't have been corrupted and corrupted the seed because they'd never been with a man and were never uh, wed. But the married women could have been corrupted and probably were. And you look at the, the horror of all these things, of the Canaanites and their sinfulness, it exhibits rampant idolatry and incest, adultery, even child sacrifice, uh, homosexuality, and one of the worst of all is bestiality. Now, this reveals that God's reason for commanding their death was not genocide. It wasn't ethnic cleansing. It was for capital punishment. And, I mean, after all, the Old Testament unequivocally 
commanded that those who do any one of those things deserve to die. Now, God made it clear in his conversation with Abraham regarding the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah that they were to come out, they were to repent and come out, but they wouldn't do it. God knows who's going to repent and who's not. He knows your whole life from the beginning to the end. And not one person came out of the cities of, of Sodom before it was destroyed. Now, only Lot and his family who were forced to come out. Uh, but the other people in Sodom, God gave them up. God gave them over to a reprobate mind. His spirit would not strive forever. He says, you want it, you can have it your way. And they stayed, and they were destroyed. In Leviticus 18, God warns Israel that if they commit similar sins, that the land would vomit them out. And so Israel wasn't to commit those sins either. Now later, when Israel disobeyed God and allowed Canaanites to continually live among them, the corrupt and seductive power of the Canaanites in their sin resulted in the Canaanization of Israel. They became like the Canaanites. It's like Lot when he was in Sodom. It says two or three times that he was vexed by the Canaanites and being affected by the Canaanites, and so was Israel because they were living among them at times. Subsequently, God sent prophets and to preach against all that, and God said that they became like Sodom to me and visited destruction on Israel and who committed the same, the same crimes. Uh, once again, this reveals that God's not involved in genocide or ethnic cleansing, but it was capital punishment. Now, when it comes to the Canaanites, they had many of the same sins, and let's talk about a couple of them uh, one at a time, like idolatry. Uh, the Canaanite worship was of other gods that they made with their own hands, pottery and wood and sticks and rocks, and they'd worship just about anything, and God used to, to mock them. Uh, they are by nature no gods. They have hands, but they can't help you, and arms that don't reach down and help you. Uh, they can't do anything. They're not really any good for anything, and God used to mock them. But that's the kind of gods that they had. Uh, the Canaanites also would take the God of the Bible and transform his scriptural depiction and turn him into other things that were really offensive to God. They would turn him into a castrating uh, weakling, uh, that like to play with his own excrement and urine. Now that really would have been offensive to God, and that's the way the Canaanites were. Uh, the story of Canaanite incest in adultery and child sacrifice and homosexuality and bestiality, it all comes out of their idolatry. Even their gods did these things. So how could they not follow that example when even their gods were doing this thing? Uh, for example, incest. Like all ancient Near East pantheons, the Canaanite pantheon was incestuous. Uh, for example, Baal had sex with his mother, with his sister, and with his, his daughter. Now, they had the death penalties at one time, but although the early Canaanite laws prescribed either death or banishment for most of these crimes, after the 4th century, the penalty was reduced to no more than the paying of a fine. Went from death to the paying of a fine. 
Now, in the larger ancient Near East context, it's helpful to consider that in an ancient dream book, there is an Egyptian dream book, and in this dream book, dreams having sex with your mother or your sister was considered a good omen. And we'll see something else about dreams a little bit later. But that's the way that the Canaanites looked at it. And as far as adultery, uh, Canaanite religion, like those of all the ancient Near East, uh, they were a fertility group. They were a religion of sex that involved temple sex as part of their religion. And, for example, Ishtar, uh, also known as the Queen of Heaven, became the woman among the gods, patron of eroticism and sensuality and conjugal love, as well as uh, adultery and brides and prostitutes, transvestites, and so forth. And so uh, the Canaanites even remake the god of the Bible, El, after their own image and portray him ceremonially as having sex with two different women, two different goddesses. So they keep transforming the image of of the real God and doing all of these terrible things, and uh, they were going to be punished for that. The ceremony they had in some of these temples ends with uh, directions uh, to repeat it five times by the company and then uh, the singers of the assembly. And so they had to do these uh, various uh, acts and then repeat them. Child abuse was also big among the Canaanites. Um, They had many gods. One of them was Molech. You've heard about children who were being passed through the fire in the Old Testament. Molech was a Canaanite underworld uh, deity. Uh, He's represented as an upright bullhead idol with a human body in whose belly a fire was stoked and in whose outstretched arms children were placed that they would be burned to to death. The victims were not only infants, but also children as old as four years of old. It's reported that the flame burning the child surrounded the body, the limbs would shrivel up, and the mouth would appear to grin as if laughing until it was shrunk enough to slip into a cauldron. And so it was pretty gruesome. Homosexuality was a big thing in Israel, but there's no ancient Near East text that condemns homosexuality. Also, some manuscripts talk about party boys and festive people who changed their masculinity into femininity to make the people of Ishtar revere her. We'll see also uh, and remember the problem with the Canaanite city of Sodom and Gomorrah uh, having sex with men, and this sex wasn't consensual. They came out and demanded these men and wanted to have homosexual relations with them, and it wasn't even a uh, consensual. Not that that makes it okay. Also, probably the most ultimate depravity has to do with intercourse with animals, uh, bestiality. 
uh, Hittite law 199 states that if anyone has intercourse with a pig or a dog, he shall die. So in that law, if they had sex with a pig or a dog, they would die. But if a man had intercourse with a horse or a mule, there's no punishment. That was their law. Now, as with incense, the penalty for having sex with animals decreased, and it went from capital punishment and death to a fine about the 4th century B.C. Now, there should be no surprise that bestiality would occur among the Canaanites since their very own gods practiced it. From the Canaanite epic poem, the Baal cycle, we learn mightiest Baal hears he makes love with a heifer in the outback, a cow in the field of death's realm. He lies with her 70 times 7, mounts 80 times 8, she conceives and bears a boy. So uh, Baal, their god, is having sex with a heifer and with a cow. Their gods had bestiality as part of what they did. Now, there was absolutely no prohibition against bestiality in the rest of the ancient Near East. No prohibition against bestiality. In fact, in that Egyptian dream book I told you about, it was a bad omen for a woman to dream about embracing her husband. If she had a dream about embracing and hugging her husband, that was a bad omen. But good things would happen if she dreamed of having intercourse with a baboon, a wolf, or a he-goat. In short, these people had sexual fantasies involving everything that breathed. Every Canaanite was not killed. Uh, people that were spared, uh, like the 32,000 virgins, show that it wasn't genocide or ethnic cleansing, um, but it was for capital punishment reasons. Now, that's one reason that they had to be destroyed, capital punishment. The other one had to do with the events of Genesis 6, 1 through 4. And I'm just going to read the scriptures right now. It says, And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God, we'll find out our angels, saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit will not strive with man forever, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. And then it says there were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, that's an important phrase, and also after that, that when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bear children, these same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. And we're going to see what this is all about. This sounds hard to believe. It's talking about angels assuming a physical form, coming down, having sex with women, and bearing children that were not human and were not non-human. 
a hybrid race in the order to pervert the lineage and the human race. And it was so widespread, God had to destroy the Canaanites, both in the flood and, and with Israel. Now you think, boy, this sounds pretty unbelievable that angels would come down and have sex. But this is the view of the ancient Hebrew sages. Uh, they believed in this angel theory. Also, the traditional rabbinical uh, interpretation of Genesis 1 through 4 was the same thing. We see it in the book of Enoch, which wasn't a canonical book, but it has its uses. Also, in another work called Testimony of the Twelve Patriarchs, and in the Septuagint, and even in the historian Josephus, he assumes this Genesis 6, 1 through 4 angel theory uh, without question. Uh, Josephus, the historian. Also, the early church fathers held that the events of Genesis 6, 1 through 4 had to do with angels coming down and procreating with women. Uh, Philo of Alexandria, Justin Martyr, uh, Irenaeus, uh, Tertullian, Ambrose, uh, Julian, and others uh, believed this theory. So, if you believe this theory, uh, you're in good company. Modern conservative scholars uh, believe this theory. Uh, C.H. Penrod, M.R. Dehan, uh, G.H. McIntosh, uh, uh, Delitz, who has the word study, uh, Kyle and Delitz, which is a classic, um, A.C. Gableine, Arthur W. Pink, Donald Barnhouse, Henry Morris from San Diego, uh, Hal Lindsey, Merrill Unger, who wrote the definitive book on demonology, uh, Tim LaHaye, and also Chuck Smith, by the way, and many other conservative scholars uh, believe this theory, and the more you look at it, the more you will uh, believe it as well. Um, these are ancient ideas. This idea embodies the legends of every myth in ancient culture on the planet Earth. Everywhere you go, you will find uh, this same event of angels coming down with men. And in the Greek mythology, they did it all the time. Now, the Bible says all the earth was corrupt. Genesis uh, 12 says all flesh was corrupted. And so, if all flesh is corrupted, and these men of renown these giants, these Nephilim, which are fallen angels, uh, were everywhere. God had to destroy everything to get rid of them to preserve the line. Now, I'm going to read Genesis 6, 1 through 4 now uh, and make comments on each one. It says, And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair. Now, sons of God is what I want you to see there. That's a term that's used in the Old Testament of angels. The phrase always means angels. It's used three times in the book of Job, Job 1.6, uh, 2.1, It's also used in Luke 20.37 in the New Testament. It's used in the book of Enoch and in the Septuagint. And uh, so it's a common phrase, but it always means angels. Now, an angel is something... Is there a son of God by direct creation? Angels were created by direct creation. That's why they're called sons of God. Adam was a son of God by direct creation. And we are sons of God because of the new birth. But before the new birth, we're daughters and sons of Adam. But as it says in John 1, uh, Jesus came unto his own and his own received him not. 
But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become sons of God by direct creation, by the new birth that he talks about in Genesis uh, or in uh, John chapter 3. And so the angels came down, they took the daughters of men, saw that they were fair, and they took them wives. And the Hebrew here indicates that it wasn't consensual, that they came down and took wives uh, of which they chose, and it wasn't necessarily consensual. And the Lord said, My spirit will not strive with man forever, for uh, he is also flesh, and his day shall be 120 years. Then in verse 4 it says, There were giants, Nephilim, in the earth in those days. Now that word giants in the Hebrew is the word Nephilim. Nephilim doesn't mean giants, but these Nephilim were big. The word Nephilim means fallen ones, like angels. There were giants, fallen ones, in those days uh, on the earth. Now the verb, nephar, it means to fall, be cast down, fall away, or desert. Like angels that deserted God and left with Satan and came down to earth and had sex with uh, women. They can assume a physical form, part human and part non-human. They were like the gods of many of the Canaanites, which were demigods in their mythology. Uh, they did the same thing. A Titan uh, was a giant, and Atlas, and Her- Hercules. And the Canaanite religions had many of these uh, demagogues and giants in their mythology uh, as well. And it says that they uh, did all that in those days. And, then it said, and also after that. That's an important phrase, and also after that, because the flood wiped out everyone on the earth except Noah and his family, and got rid of all the Nephilim, all the giants, and all those that were infected by this uh, corruption that happened as a result of, of the sex of the fallen angels and the women. They all died in the flood. But there was apparently giants in the land of Canaan after the flood. And the Bible tells us that uh, there was apparently a reoccurrence of the Genesis 6, 1 through 4 scenario. Uh, you remember when the spies went into the land of Canaan, they came back and said, man, those guys are big. We're like grasshoppers uh, to those people. Uh, these giant Nephilim were apparently there in the land of Canaan to thwart Israel's enemy to take the land. Now, if you question some of this, you can go into archaeology and giants, and you'll find out that they're all over the world, these giants, 8, 10, 12, 11, 13 feet, and having six fingers and like that. And it's a real thing that happened in history, and it's not hard to prove. Now, Numbers 13 says there were Nephilim in the land. So in the land of Canaan, after the flood, there were Nephilim, giants, these monstrosities, in the land of Canaan. And so Israel had to go in the land of Canaan and annihilate Canaanites to eliminate this danger. Now, uh, we also read of the king of Og, who was the, the king of the giants. We read of uh, Anak and the seven sons of Anak uh, that were giants. There were many giants in the land. Uh, Goliath, for example, was one of them. The sons of Anak and his sons were, were giants. Uh, there were four tribes in the land that God absolutely wanted to be completely wiped out. 
They must have been uh, tribes that had a lot of these giants and Anakins in them. Uh, these tribes are Rephaim, Em, Horem, uh, Zam, Sumin. Uh, and uh, God absolutely wanted the Canaanites to go in and wipe out everybody in those tribes. So it must have been replete with these uh, monstrosities. Um, some speak of uh, uh, Rephaim in the land, and uh, they're big and strong as well. And uh, perhaps uh, they're responsible, some people think, for the ancient sites that we can't explain. The, the pyramids, Stonehenge, uh, there are stones as big as boxcars weighing tons and tons, moved hundreds of miles, and we can't figure out how they moved them, how they did it. There's ancient civilizations and engineering that we haven't figured out uh, to this day. Also, as we continue, uh, when the sons of God, the fallen angels, uh, came in among the daughters of men, they bare children to them, uh, and they became mighty men of old, men of renown. And uh, that's the story. Now, there are other verses that substantiate this. Uh, Jude 6, for example, says, And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved, reserved in everlasting chains under darkness, uh, unto the judgment of the great day. Now, it says they left their first habitation. I believe that was the habitation of holiness, and they left God. Uh, their first estate was holiness. It says they left their habitation. The word used for habitation is only used twice in the Bible, and it's always used of a spiritual body. And so these angels left their first estate of holiness and left their habitation, their spiritual body, came down, assumed a physical form, and had sex with these women. And uh, that's what this verse uh, talks about. And these are reserved in everlasting chains of darkness. Now, you might ask yourself, why are some evil angels confined and others are roaming free? Let's look at Second uh, Peter 2, 4 through 6. It says, for if God spared not the angels that sin, but cast them down into Tartarus, into hell, and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, uh, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth uh, person, a, uh, a righteous man, uh, and then he brought the flood upon the world. Now, when it talks about this, it talks about these angels being in hell, in Tartarus. Why are some angels in this place called Tartarus, which is the deepest part, it is reported, of hell, the deepest, darkest part? Some people think it's the abyss. Why are some fallen angels confined like that and others roaming free with Satan? Theologians think it's because these are ones that participated in the events of Genesis 6, 1 through 4, and, and after that. And uh, these are the ones that were confined because of their sin. Uh, we read, interesting enough, in Genesis 6, 9, uh, these are the generations of Noah, who was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah and Noah walked with God. It says he's perfect. This doesn't mean he was absolutely sinless and perfect like that. The word perfect there uh, is interesting. Uh, it means that uh, 
he was without blemish. He was sound, healthful, without spot, and unimpaired. And so Noah was perfect. That's what the Hebrew word means. It's always used of a physical attribute. And so Noah was preserved because he wasn't corrupted, and his lineage wasn't corrupted by these giants and these Nephilim and the offspring of that. And so they were preserved in the ark. Now, uh, he was a preacher of righteousness, it says, bringing in the flood upon the world uh, of the ungodly, both of sinful men and of the Nephilim, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them uh, with an overthrow, making them an example to those that after should live ungodly. So Sodom and Gomorrah, he rained down ashes on Sodom as an example to everyone of these people with their reprobate mind that wouldn't change at all, wouldn't come out, were warned, and they stayed there, and God gave them up, and God gave them over to their own desires, and he brought down judgment on him uh, and capital punishment. And we read in verse 7, and uh, delivered just Lot with the filthy conversation of the wicked. He delivered just Lot. But it says that he was vexed as he lived among these Canaanites with their filthy conversation. For uh, the righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul, uh, Lot and others, uh, from day to day with their unlawful deeds. And so they were affected by the Canaanites. Uh, the Lord knows how to deliver the ungodly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment uh, to be punished. And uh, that's what he did. In Second Peter 3, uh, 19 and 21, uh, we read, which sometimes were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, wherein a few, that is eight souls, were saved by water. So this verse shows the long-suffering of God. Even though people were reprobated in their mind, wouldn't change their mind, God was going to give them up, give them over. God was long-suffering and waited and waited and waited, and then finally brought capital punishment on people, and he destroyed the earth with a flood. And so that's the reason uh, that the Canaanites were driven out of the land, because of capital punishment and because of trying to uh, corrupt the line in Genesis 6, 1 through 4.